Welcome back, everybody. Hello. It is my pleasure to introduce Amanda Collins. I know many of you um, probably met her and saw her last night, but Amanda is the director of Women for Concealed Carry, where she advocates for women's rights to self-defense. She's a graduate of the University of Nevada in Reno, where she earned her bachelor's degree in secondary education and English. As a Second Amendment advocate, Amanda has worked tirelessly to ensure women across the country are given the ability to choose how to protect themselves, particularly on college campuses. Because of Amanda's effort, more and more women are able to protect themselves in ways that Amanda was not able to when she was a rape victim while a student at the University of Nevada, Reno. To learn more about Amanda's story, uh, feel free to visit her NRA profile on YouTube. There's a lot of really good videos there. Amanda has appeared on NRA's Cam and Friends, Glenn Beck, Fox and Friends, Judge Jeannie, and Megyn Kelly, sharing both her personal story and her advocacy experiences with lawmakers. While her legislative efforts are what she has become publicly known for, her most impressive accomplishment is her family. You guys all saw her adorable baby here. Um, she's a loving wife and mother to three, um, Annabelle, Penelope, and Evangeline. So please join me in welcoming Amanda Collins. Thank you, Sophie, for that introduction, and thank you all for being here on a Saturday morning. It's a, an honor and a privilege to be invited here to speak again with the, the Policy Institute, and um, today I want to talk to you about some of the, the political climate pertaining to the Second Amendment. But first, I think we should visit just a little bit of our history as women because a radical constitution change, constitutional change that created a shift in our country's political and social climate was the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920, which granted women the right to vote. Consequently, the 19th Amendment gave women a voice that tends to tip the scale when it comes to social changes. The progressive liberal movement already knows the value of gaining the women's perspective and it capitalizes on women unapologetically when it comes to needing an extra push to get an agenda passed or accepted. They are attempting to harness the woman's voice for gun control and already have made some progress through various groups forming, sending us a message that as women and mothers, we are undignified if we choose to own firearms, that we cannot effectively use firearms and that we have no business having them. And if we choose to have them, we have no business having our children in our home with us. However, as constitutionally minded women, we have an obligation to this country to use the voice that was given to us to protect our Second Amendment rights through education, critical thinking, and constructive discourse. Because the power of willful ignorance can never be overstated. My involvement with preserving and advancing the Second Amendment rights came about in a way that may surprise most people. I didn't need a big aha moment like most women do to make the decision to own a firearm. I didn't need a catastrophic, catastrophic event to happen in my life for me to wake up and realize that I needed to be serious about protecting myself and my family. One of my earliest memories as a child is sitting on my father's workbench as he cleaned his firearm. 
it was his rifle, and um, I couldn't have been more than three years old. I was possibly even wearing a night shirt, winding down for the night, and I most likely had ventured down to the basement to tell him I was ready for him to tuck me into bed, and he still needed to finish up the last bit that he was doing. And so I sat up there with him to just have a talk with Daddy. And he very matter-of-factly started the conversation with gun safety. And that's when I remember that conversation starting. However, I think it, it most likely began sooner. He told me what a gun was used for, that it wasn't a toy, no gun was ever a toy, and all guns should be treated as though they are loaded. He showed me the different parts of the rifle and explained what they were used for. And this conversation was continuous in our household for my sister and I, and we had a very healthy respect for the responsibility that came with gun ownership. I started practicing under the, his guidance at the age of six. I shot competitively for my high school for three years. And throughout my life, my family reaped the benefits of my dad's enjoyment for hunting. We all know that the Second Amendment isn't about hunting. Rather, it is written for three main purposes, protection of tyranny, community protection, and self-protection. Self-protection is what I'll be focusing on mainly this morning with you. I fully understood the right and took full advantage of it. For my 22nd birthday, I asked my dad to please pay for my, sec my concealed carry class because I wanted to be an active participant in my self-defense, should the need arise. And the idea of, relying, of not relying on anyone but myself for self-defense was not a foreign concept to me. When I was five years old, I remember playing a board game with my sister in, in her bedroom, and my mom came in and informed us both that we needed to be second-degree black belts to get our driver's licenses when we turned 16. And it was about, I was like nine years old when I realized that that particular rule pertained only to myself and my sister and not for everybody. I knew my value as a human being and I knew my life was worth protecting. And even with the 10 years of martial arts training, I understood that the one equalizing factor for me as a petite woman when faced against an opponent much larger than me was a firearm. I did everything I could to ensure that I would never be an unmatched victim. However, Nevada legislators have decided to draw an arbitrary line around the university campuses and to declare them a gun-free zone. So as a law-abiding citizen, every time I stepped onto the University of Nevada, Reno, I surrendered my Second Amendment right. And that very law was, that was meant to ensure my safety did one thing. And that is the reason why this very morning, eight years ago, I woke up utterly hopeless and broken. The horrific scene that I had survived the night before was too much for me to fathom outside of a horrible daytime movie. And everything within my being had shifted and all I wanted was to be the joy-filled woman I was the morning before. But the young woman that I was 24 hours prior would never again exist in the skin that I continued to be trapped in. I was legislated into being a victim, and the infringement of my Second Amendment right interrupted my pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. October 22, 2007 was a typical Monday evening, and the only thing that seemed different for me was the midterm awaiting me at my class on the university campus. At 10 p.m., 
I walked out to the parking lodge with a group of colleagues because it had been ingrained in me that there is safety in numbers. I had parked in this particular parking garage because it was seemingly safer to park there just a short walk across the way than it was to park in off-campus parking and to have to walk that distance at night. As I approached the parking garage, I was the only one who had parked on the ground floor, and so I surveyed the area in a manner that was only second nature to me because of my martial arts training, and I saw no visible threat between myself and my vehicle, and so I wished the group a good week, and I broke off. Approaching my vehicle at an angle, I didn't, what I didn't see was the man hunched down by a wheel well of a truck next to a sedan. As he passed me from behind, he forced me down to the cold, hard asphalt, placed a pistol to my temple, clicked off the safety, told me not to say anything, and then he began to brutally rape me. As I laid there defenseless, straddled by a man much larger than me, I could feel every vertebrae in my back being slammed into the asphalt. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw the university police cruisers parked across the way. And in that moment, I knew that nobody was coming for me. I could see in his eyes that he had the propensity to kill, and with my life hanging in the thread of a trigger pull, I wondered if this is how I was going to spend the last moments of my life before I met my creator. And if I'm being perfectly honest, a big part of me was really hoping I was on my way to meeting Jesus, because actually living after surviving such a horrible crime seemed impossible. My attack lasted for eight minutes, while it just took me about a minute and a half to describe it to you. The woman I was before entering the parking garage that night wouldn't be the same woman driving out. There's no way around the fact that this was a defining moment in my life. But I had to make a choice about how this moment was going to define me. And I was adamant about not letting this be my defining moment. I'm not saying that it's been an easy journey. It's far from over. But I've learned that to be a survivor, I need four key elements on a daily basis. The first being my backbone. That's the core that everything goes back to. It's what strengthens me. It's what keeps me standing. It's what gets me up every day. And for us, our backbone needs to be something greater than ourselves. And for me, that's my faith in Jesus. Second, I needed a ribcage. And much like our body's purpose, the ribcage protects our vital organs. And it consists, that's my support system, of a few close, trustworthy friends, including my husband. And finding who I would allow in to be my ribcage outside of my family, or my husband in particular, came with trial and error. Thirdly, I need a funny bone. I had to learn to laugh at myself and to not take myself so seriously. I had to get over myself. I'm not saying that I laugh about what happened to me. That's far from funny. 
But when the situation arises to laugh, I take full advantage of it. And lastly, I needed a wishbone. I had to figure out what I wanted to do with what had happened to me. And really, it's my wishbone that brought me here today because I wanted to challenge the notion that gun-free zones are safe zones because they are nothing more than false security at ensuring public safety. Also, I now have a desire to give hope of living a full life to other survivors and to educate the public about the devastating and lifelong effects rape has on the survivor and to change the cultural mindset around rape. The terror I felt in the moments during my attack continued to haunt me for the next 13 months while my attacker remained at large in ways that only other rape victims and survivors can understand. In November 2008, the man who raped me was captured by the Reno Police Department and the face that had haunted my nightmares for so long finally had a name, James Bila. He would later be convicted in district court for not only raping me at gunpoint in a gun-free zone, but for kidnapping and raping a second woman and for the rape and murder of Brianna Dennison. To be honest, before my attack, I never really thought twice about having to leave my firearm at home. It bothered me, and I understand why I seem to be trustworthy or untrustworthy on campus when I seem to be perfectly capable of making sound decisions about my safety and the safety of those around me everywhere else in my daily life. But I'm a rule follower. And so I followed the rules, believing I didn't have a dog in the fight, so to speak. And I believe that nothing of this magnitude would have ever happened to me. I was a smart young woman who was aware of my surroundings, and I would have never let anyone take advantage of me. I was wrong on both ends. As human beings, we always have the right to stand up and to say that our lives, our dignity, and our bodies are worth protecting. My children and my home are worth keeping safe. And if our safety cannot be guaranteed by a third party, then we have every right to be able to protect ourselves in the manner that we choose without the government dictating that. The question of my life is and will remain to be, what would have been different if I had been carrying my firearm that night? It is a question that continually keeps me up as I replay the worst eight minutes of my life over and over again, and several different possibilities have played out. But there's always one end result. At some point, I would have been able to stop my attack as it was in progress. I'm not saying that with the way it started, I would have been able to prevent it from starting, but I would have been able to stop it as it was in progress, and consequently, two other rapes would have been prevented and three young lives would have been saved, including my own. It's human nature to always brush these sad and unfortunate stories like mine off as that poor girl. Until that poor girl becomes you, your friend, your daughter, or someone else you love trying to piece a life back together. I'm often told by people, well, your, your case is just so rare. Well, as I'm standing here before you today, consider most rapes go unreported, as did mine initially. And while I'm talking to you about one incident involving two other cases, we have no way of knowing just how many assaults actually occur and how many assaults occur on university campuses. What we do know is what's reported 
one in four women will be raped while attending college, and a third of those will occur on the campus that they are attending. A study from the Journal of Interpersonal Violence found that 126 admitted perpetrators had committed 907 sexual assaults involving 882 different victims. I'm gonna say it again, some of you heard this last night, but it alarms me every time I read it. 126 admitted perpetrators had committed 907 sexual assaults involving 882 victims. That's an average of seven victims per perpetrator that was serving for one sexual assault. So with this information, I can confidently stand before you today and tell you that what is rare about my case is that I'm talking about it. More often than not, the very first argument I hear for maintaining Roe v. Wade is, what if a woman gets raped? Four short years after Roe v. Wade in 1977 in Coker v. Virginia, the Supreme Court ruled the sentence of death for the crime of rape is grossly disproportionate and excessive punishment and is therefore forbidden by the Eighth Amendment as cruel and unusual punishment. The rapist does not take a human life. If we as a society really cared about women getting raped like the pro-choice movement claims, then the very first thing they would do is overturn Coker v. Virginia, or Georgia. If we really wanted the government to stay outside of our bodies, then we would do whatever we could to equip women with the ability to prevent rape. Instead, we are told to somehow make ourselves less desirable to our raper by vomiting, urinating on ourselves, crying, telling him we have a sexually transmitted disease, because somehow owning a, a firearm and not, sorry, somehow owning a firearm and wanting to effectively defend ourselves is what's undignified. After Brianna Dennison went missing, the University of Nevada, Reno, handed out these really handy whistles to all the co-eds. I was in a sorority and we got a huge box on our doorstep so that we could put these on our keychains. And so that we could blow these. <whistles> to get help. This seems to be more dignified and more effective for us to sit and wait for a third party to show up, most likely a government official with their gun, to help us. The national response time is 11 minutes. My entire attack was over an eight. The choice to participate in one's own self-defense should be left to the individual. That individual choice should not be mandated by the government, and we as law-abiding citizens should not have to hand over our safety to a third party. The legislators of Nevada continue to effectively legislate women into victims by stripping away our Second Amendment right simply because they are more intimidated by law-abiding citizens like me sitting in class with our permitted weapon than they are of the rapist raiding 
for me in the parking garage, who, by the way, is armed in a gun-free zone. There was nothing in place to keep James Spiela from coming onto the university campus to rape me with a gun in 2007, and there's currently nothing to keep the next James Spiela off of our gun-free campuses across the nation now. During his sentencing, Mr. Bila received a one-year one enhancement charge for raping me in a gun-free zone. To the judicial system, that's how much that infringement is worth to the criminal, a one-year enhancement charge. He is currently also serving four consecutive life sentences and the death penalty. So I've been asked, what more do you want? Well, it sets a precedent that as a law-abiding citizen, I have more to lose if I carry my firearm and more to lose if I don't. If I had carried my firearm that night, I would have faced expulsion from school, loss of my CCW permit, and possible jail time. Mr. Beloy wasn't obtaining an education when he came onto that campus. He didn't have a CCW permit. Losing those two things really meant nothing to him. And obviously, the possibility of going to jail didn't really serve as much of a deterrent either because he was intent on committing a crime while using a firearm. The scope of the Second Amendment has proven to be one of the most debated and intense battles that has been fought on the political forefront. Though minor advances and pitfalls have been taken by both factions, the debate of gun control continues to be one that is deadlocked. And this controversy will probably continue to remain stagnant and taking significant steps forward toward either side of the argument until women stand up and create enough momentum to turn the tide. And we as constitutionally minded women must stand up and make our voice be known. Maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering why? And what does the Second Amendment really have to do with me? Well, our counterparts, those in the opposite party, know the value of the woman's voice. So even if you choose not to have a firearm, you should stand up and fight for the right for the women around you to be able to make that choice for themselves. As leaders, we should show women how to become a force to be reckoned with. And we need to continue asking one question until we get a valid answer. How does rendering me defenseless protect you against a violent crime? I've been asking that question for the last five years, and I have yet to receive a satisfying response. Thank you. Are there any questions or well I had to get on a plane and I don't believe that there is reciprocity in Texas so you do have to be aware of the law still if you choose to carry nobody else Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. Yep, you. Okay. Um, so I live in 
in Connecticut. Um, the odds of it now, how bad do you want it? Sometimes I think the squeakiest wheel gets the oil. I would look into what your particular policy is to university. I didn't touch on this today. Last night I did. Currently now, the University of Nevada, Reno, has a stipulation in their policy that individual, um, individual permission can be granted. I'm the only person that it's ever been granted to this day for, I should correct what I said, for a working firearm because professors who are wanting to bring in like a piece of history of a musket that doesn't work still has to get permission. They think if you have like an emblem of a gun on your, like a pendant, that you should get permission for that. Um, so yeah, but I got that permission granted to me for those of you who weren't there last night after Brianna Dennison's body was found naked, abandoned in a field, and James Bela was still at large. The process took over two months, and it came with six stipulations, the first being that if I ever disclosed that I was granted such permission, then it would be null and void. So they granted me my Second Amendment right at the expense of my first. And why is it that I'm all of a sudden like my voice is what I'm trying to say is why does a woman have to have my story to be heard pertaining to this issue it's asinine that I have to have my story to be heard and for it to give this issue validity you all should be fighting if you have been lucky enough to not have my story or to not be sexually assaulted, you'd be fighting to maintain your story because the odds are not in your favor. I am sorry they are not. One in four, that's what's reported. I think it's probably closer to one in two because everywhere I go, I always meet a handful of women that let me know that they've never told anybody but me. You should be fighting to maintain your story, and that should be enough. I just want to make sure I'm, I'm understanding your question. So are you, are you asking that for women who have disclosed to me that they've been attacked, how hard is it for them to make the jump to want to carry concealed? I think both. I think it's human nature to always want to understand why horrific things happen, especially when it's out of your control. It's sometimes easier to understand that there could have been something that you could have done to prevent it. Um, I know a lot of women, it's not that hard for them to see. Unfortunately, a lot of women, like I touched before, they have to have something like that happen to them in order to realize that they need 
to be serious about protecting themselves because a third party's not gonna show up in time. Law enforcement is an integral part of our society, but the probability of them showing up as a crime is in progress is very small. They're there to collect evidence. They're not there to, you know, stop it as it's in progress, unfortunately. So, and I don't ever, when someone discloses to me that they've been attacked also, a lot of times that's the hardest leap for them is actually verbalizing it. To say the words, I was raped too, is extremely difficult for somebody who's been keeping it suppressed for so long, no matter how much time has passed. And so I, I generally don't steer the conversation into, well, that's why you need a weapon. It's, um, you know, there's a lot more that needs to be tended to at that point. And there's women that I know who have been attacked and they still choose not to carry. And I, it's not a decision that I understand because it's not a decision that I will make for myself, but I respect that choice for them. And I respect them more because even though they choose not to carry themselves, they're not trying to infringe on my choice to carry. And some of them are even speaking up and saying, you know, yeah, they show up and say, yeah, I agree with you. You should be able to choose that should you want to. So that's often what I, I say, you know, like if, I don't know if I'm answering your question. I'm sorry. I hope I did. Yeah. Um, since you have daughters, what is your vision for the future um, for them and for other women just about the attitude towards concealed carry um, and just sort of how it relates especially to women in the future? I think my vision for my daughters is that they'll be able to choose how to effective, how they want to defend them bo their bodies no matter where they're at and that it'll be acceptable. I want them to be able to choose what school they can go to and not have to factor in, can I protect myself on this campus if I go here or do I have to surrender that right? Thank you. Over there and then there. So in all honesty, I don't have a lot of knowledge about kind of the process that it takes to get a permit and what sure. that looks like. And so I was just wondering if you can kind of give me some of the basics and how accessible this is to maybe people who didn't, like myself, I grew up with no guns in my yeah. town and, and anywhere around me. And so how, how accessible is this for people who are maybe just exploring this and, and what does that process look like um, for people who maybe didn't have a father who taught them and um, right. family members or friends who, who are knowledgeable in this area? So, Depending upon the area that you're in, I think that there's actually a lot of resources available if you know where to go looking. You can look up um, firearm instructors. I would encourage for you to start at taking some basic firearms training courses that will cover firearm safety, a lot of like what I got as a child. It's, and um, to get yourself familiar with holding a firearm so that it's not so intimidating and understanding how it works. and and what it all entails. And generally, those classes will take you 
a portion of that is actually shooting. So it, it's in a very controlled environment to make sure that everybody is safe. And that is what I would recommend. And then um, as far as obtaining a CCW permit, you need to take a class from in the county that you preside in and it will cover the law of the class and then you often need to depending upon the state that you're in you're required to demonstrate a live shooting that you are proficient in the weapon that you are choosing to carry on your body which i think is good you should be able that is a responsibility a big responsibility that should not be taken lightly so you should be able to hit where you're aiming and then you need to, after that, take your certificate to the sheriff's department or the sheriff's office where you will pay whichever, whatever the fee is in your county for fingerprints, for an FBI background check, and then the sheriff still has to issue you your permit. And depending upon where you live, if it's a shall issue state, like in Nevada, then if I pass those requirements, the sheriff has to grant that to me if it's a May issue state, then oftentimes it's at the discretion of the sheriff and it just depends as to whether or not he's a fan of it or not. Um, I don't agree with that. And um, also it is always, people seem to think that, oh, if you have your permit, like it's so easy to obtain, but the class itself, like it is not meant to teach you how to shoot your firearm. You should go in there knowing how to use your firearm. So that's why I, I recommend the basic courses first and then even taking maybe some more advanced shooting classes to that, to that end. Thank you. Yeah. I think you were next. Okay. Oh, no, you need the mic. Um, so at TCU, if you didn't know, we just, and the student body government, decided to opt out of campus carry. Um, and that was a unanimous vote in our student government. And the topic of women protecting themselves never came up. And I think that has partly to do with that at our Frogs First training is what we call um, the mandatory training about all policy-related issues at the beginning of freshman or transfer years. Um, we have a speaker come in about her sexual assault case, and she doesn't talk about defending herself from it. She talks about reporting it and how to avoid it because according to her statistics, the majority of cases are somebody you know. Mm -hmm. And so um, I don't think there's enough awareness about cases like yours. Um, and like you said, because it's so rare to talk about it. So how can we get that awareness? Like on our campuses and get awareness about women protecting themselves. Start talking about it. Open up the conversation, shift the cultural mindset pertaining to rape. Um, as I've been doing my advocacy, you know, for the Second Amendment, I've also, I gained this desire to change the cultural mindset around rape because I, I noticed as I was speaking to different legislators and whatnot that I don't really care that women are getting raped, unfortunately. There's this social acceptance that women get raped that it's just kind of like an unfortunate thing that happens, but they'll get over it. And that should disgust you and make you mad. And if you don't believe me, then I, I want to share with you more whenever I speak. I often get questions 
like, well, what were you wearing? Um, well, what, what could I do different? Like, what could you have done different? Just so that I know, what could you have done different to not put yourself in that situation, you poor girl? And then um, I didn't initially report my rape, which I, I somewhat touched on. And I was asked, well, do women just not report rape? Because we're, you're so promiscuous anyways these days that it's just one more. That doesn't really matter. That's disgusting. So we need to start talking about rape and what it is and what it does. And we need to take away the shame factor for women if it happens to them that it's not your fault. And even if you know the person, they have no business treating you that way. Because if people start caring about the fact and are more aware that women are getting raped here in our country, then maybe the, mind sh the, the shift will change to how do we equip our women so that they can defend themselves? Because yes, we need to teach our boys how to respect women's bodies and that it's not just for them, for the taking, but we also need to allow our women to defend themselves effectively too so that men will know that I might get more than I bargained for if I choose to, to behave in this manner. Yeah, and then. A common argument against concealed carry is protecting children. Um, and for example, in northern Idaho last year, there was a mom who had a concealed uh, gun in her purse, and her two-year-old shot her. Mm -hmm. How do you respond? You, you're both a mom and you have you, this story. How do you respond to that argument? I think um, to that end, I mean, I cannot imagine what that family is going through, and so I, I'm not going to pretend to know. And I don't know all the particulars about how that family decided to um, function with a firearm in their household. I carry because I am my three girls' first responder. I'm it. Someone wants to take my kid, they're going to have to get through me. And it's going to be a lot harder for them than they think. And um, it's a continuous conversation with my girls about what a firearm is. There's no curiosity in my house about the fact that we have them. They know that their dad carries. They know that I carry. My four-year-old knows that it's not a toy. She knows not to touch it. I tell my two-year-old, that's a no-touch. You know, and it, as they get older, exposing them to um, allowing them to know how to shoot safely and to not make it this taboo thing in your house if you choose to have them. And then also, I factor in the fact that I have little ones when I'm carrying, so I don't make it accessible to them. I'm not going to disclose where I carry because I don't think that I don't want to, like, I don't think that that's judicious. But at the same time, you need to be aware of all the factors of what could happen, and that's part of the responsibility of, of owning a firearm and, and carrying is that. And I think that there needs to be more discussion about what women can do and where they can carry and the, the um, products that are available out there to make sure that while you're carrying to protect your children, they're safe.
I don't mean in any way to trivialize your specific situation, which of course is bad for anyone, but I just think by the time I'm my age, I would warn college age women and young men, there is an effort to disarm us and you need to go back not just to what do males sometimes do. I happen to be pro-male and I don't think they're all predators and they're all wanting to rape everybody, but that does happen obviously. This is more about we have a constitutional right to defend mm -hmm. ourselves and you're not just defending yourself against what some young man might do, you're defending yourself against a government that is trying to overreach and take away your freedoms. And so the more they can, can, can uh, create gun-free zones, that's another form of saying mm -hmm. you don't have the right that the Constitution gives you. So I would just urge you, because at one time I was your age, and your generation is who they want to get you to think about, well, but what if this, and some, what if this mother had, of course it's horrible that a little child was killed by the mother's gun, but you can find all kinds of anecdotes, and we can't m take away constitutional freedoms that keep you safe as an individual from a predator or from an out of control government that wants to disarm you. So go back to the Constitution, not simply interactions between what might happen to a young woman. Of course, that's terrible, but you cover all the bases. You're protected if you have the right to have a gun, but everybody doesn't have to do that. And you see all these situations where gun-free zones, who shows up? The guy with the gun, because mm -hmm. he knows you're fish in a barrel that he just shoots at you and nobody's gonna stop him. Yeah, thank you. I, I fully, fully agree with that, absolutely. And I, you touched on this a bit, and I think it's very important that we realize that what the government is doing currently is systematically just chipping away little by little, little by little. And what the, the progressive liberals now, they've even changed gun control to gun safety. Because if someone asks you in your class, well, are you for gun safety measures? And you say no, you look like an idiot to say, no, I'm not for gun safety. Well, of course I'm for gun safety. We should all be safe, but I'm not for systematically chipping away at our Second Amendment right until we have nothing left. So thank you for that comment. I fully agree with you. Just to backtrack a little to what Julie was saying earlier, I was just wondering what your response would be to, um, I guess, the argument that says that, oh, many women are, like, if they are sexually assaulted, it is by somebody they know. Mm -hmm. And in that sort of situation, um, I guess people would, would question the effectiveness of a gun because they would say, oh, since it's a person, the woman is likely to pull the trigger. Does a man know that? Would he? be any more deterred from behaving in that way because he knows that her personality, for example, may not, like she won't shoot him because she knows him. Like in that sort of situation, how would you respond? Even though I didn't know my attacker, people have told me that most likely he would have been able to take my firearm away from me. To which um, I, I know no, and two, that is the choice for the woman to decide if she wants to be able to protect herself in that manner. 
standing before you today, even with the beautiful life I have now, I can, I can tell you I would have rather died trying. And that's my choice to make. I think a lot of the problem with why people are so afraid of guns is because they're just unfamiliar with them and don't mm -hmm. really know how they work. Um, so do you have any suggestions on how we, especially as student leaders, can sort of work to demystify guns on campus in order to create a culture that is less just about gun control? Yeah. I think... Um I kind of touched on this a little bit last night, but I think for people who are just against guns and don't want to have anything to do them, most likely have the sentiment towards them that I do to snakes. And um, I'm never going to like snakes. It doesn't matter how much you tell me that they're cuddly and you want me to hold one, it's not going to happen. And so I think, unfortunately, what the media portrays and what movies portray with guns are awful and they make them to be out they demonify that instead of the real issue at hand. But I think we as individuals, if we have friends who are, say, adamantly against guns, to just constantly, if you go out to shoot or something, just invite them to come along. Like, hey, do you want to come see and what this is all about? Like, it's really not, I just want you to experience it so that you can make the most informed decision for yourself that you can. And when you, I mean, take them to a controlled, safe environment and be safe, you know, but then just showing them and exposing them to that to see that it's not all. And if you let, I mean, I'm a very disarming person. I think, like, when I get on the plane with my baby, people do not assume, oh, that's someone that's going to go talk about the Second Amendment to a bunch <laughs> of people. So, and if they ask me, like, oh, what are you doing? I just say, oh, I'm traveling to go talk, you know, speak at a leadership conference. Oh, really? What about? Well, actually, the Second Amendment. And they often have a whole lot to say, so I let them talk. And then when they ask, oh, so what, what are you talking about? And I say, well, actually, and I just, I open up the conversation and realizing that this debate is extremely emotionally driven from both sides. And so maintaining your decorum, especially if you are pro-Second Amendment and, and maintaining the Second Amendment, it is very important to remember to remain level-headed because if you don't, that can come back against you. See, Well, see that right there? You're not even ever tempered when you're talking about guns, so how can I trust you with one? So that is where I would, would start would just be to open up conversation. That way. Thank you. Anyone else? One more question? Thank you very much, Amanda. Yeah, thank you.